As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob Crawford. This is founding son, John Quincy's America. In the early 1800s, the seeds of Manifest Destiny began to take root. American settlers spread west at a rapid pace by the 1820s. Many white Southerners swooped into northern Mexico, bringing the people they enslaved with them, creating a plantation state similar to those in the American South. In 1829, Mexico pushed back, banning slavery within its borders, its territories likely to follow. The move sent outrage across the country's northern borderlands. Resentment built among white settlers, and violent skirmishes broke out between them and the Mexican government. By the fall of 1835, an all-out war had begun. Against the Mexican army, Texas forces were outnumbered, undisciplined, and scattered. But the Texans knew the territory. They fortified an old mission at a crucial crossroads and waited to ambush the Mexican army. Unbeknownst to the 150 or so Texans in the mission, including the soldiers' families, the Mexican army had orders to destroy the rebellion once and for all. The Mexican army surrounded the mission. When one of the leaders of the Texans, Jim Bowie, looked over the walls, he saw a sea of Mexican soldiers, nearly 2,000 against fewer than 200 Texans. When the Texans refused to surrender, Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana ordered a red flag to be flown from a nearby church, a sign to those holed up in the mission. No quarter would be given. The Battle of the Alamo had begun. Days into the siege of the Alamo, reinforcements still hadn't arrived. Bowie's co-commander, William B. Travis, penned a letter to his countrymen 
and all the world from within the Alamo walls. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison ought to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel, Commandant. Just before the break of dawn on the 13th day of fighting, the Mexican army stormed the mission, sparing only women, children, and enslaved people in the slaughter. Every fighting man met his end with either a bullet or a bayonet. The message was clear. The Mexican army was happy to abide by William Travis's terms. Victory or death? But they weren't the only ones to receive a message. Among the dead at the Alamo, former Tennessee Congressman Davy Crockett. Outrage and calls for vengeance rippled across hundreds and hundreds of miles through the plantations of the South, northward to Washington, D.C. and the floor of Congress. U.S. citizens had been killed at the hands of the Mexican Army. The bloodbath in Texas was a tragedy quickly becoming a national disaster. Lawmakers were bombarded with calls to send U.S. troops to Texas. At the heart of this decision was a giant Texas-sized elephant in the room. What would happen if northern Mexican territory seized its independence? Would it join the United States? And what would happen if a slave state the size of Texas joined the Union? The outcome of the rebellion had the potential to upset the balance of power in the United States for generations. Chapter 4. Don't Mess With Texas. When news of the massacre in Texas reached the U.S. Capitol, John Quincy Adams took to the House floor. He spoke out against the U.S. getting involved in a war with Mexico. But before he or any other lawmaker could even decide whether to send troops to Texas, the direction of the war had shifted dramatically. Following the Alamo, the Texas Army, a ragtag group of rebels, was on the run, retreating eastward from San Antonio to the Gulf of Mexico. The Mexican Army, close behind, committed to ending the rebellion. The former governor of Tennessee and a close friend of Andrew Jackson, Sam Houston, led the Texans. With their backs against the Gulf of Mexico and the Mexican army bearing down on them, Houston ordered his men to make a final stand, turn and attack rather than flee. On April 21st, 1836, just weeks after the Battle of the Alamo, Texans launched an assault against the Mexican army near modern-day Houston. Screaming, remember the Alamo, Houston's troops attacked mercilessly, catching their enemy off guard. The Mexican army, 
surprised, scattered. The battle lasted just 18 minutes. At the end, Mexican General Santa Ana stood in shackles. In exchange for his freedom, he agreed to take his army and leave Texas for good. The Alamo had been avenged. The Republic of Texas was now an independent nation. They say everything is bigger in Texas. Well, that was true in 1836 as well. With Mexico no longer controlling this vast stretch of borderlands along the American Southwest, a power vacuum had been created. There's this sense that if Texas isn't annexed, then Great Britain is going to step in or some other European power, and you'll have this big anti-slavery borderland in the Southwest. So slaveholders and their allies really want to get Texas into the American Union. And then maybe they want to create several states to boost their political power on top of that. This is Richard Newman, professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology. So this is a vital issue for Southerners and their allies, and that makes it an incredibly important issue to the abolitionist movement and to anti-slavery congressmen in the North like Adams. Adams came to believe that the annexation of Texas was being pursued by Southerners in the hopes of upsetting the balance between slave states and free. And so here I need to go back a tiny bit in history and explain. That's John Quincy Adams biographer James Traub. He says to understand why Texas was such a political hot potato, you have to go back to the 1820s when Adams was secretary of state. The Union was expanding westward, adding more states all the time, and every new addition to the Union had potential to disrupt the balance of power between free and slave states. This proved especially challenging when Missouri was becoming a state, because it's pretty central. Is it a northern state or is it a southern state? So Congress came up with a solution. We will draw a line, an east-west line, And we will henceforward say that all states north of that line would be free states. And all states below that line would be slave states. It was actually more of a compromise than a solution. A line was drawn. Free states to the north, slave states to the south. Missouri being an exception, a slave state on the wrong side of the line. Since that threw off the balance between free and slave states a new free state would have to be admitted. What we now call the Missouri Compromise. And the compromise ultimately said that we will allow a slave state, Missouri, to come in along with the free state, Maine. There was no doubt that Texas would be a slave state. But Southern politicians had grand machinations. They wanted to annex Texas and carve it up into several slave states completely destroying the Missouri Compromise and tilting the balance of power in their favor. Congressman John Quincy caught wind of the scheme and set out to prevent it. President Andrew Jackson also opposed annexation. There was just one problem. His term was coming to an end. The frontrunner to replace him was Vice President Martin Van Buren, the heir apparent, selected by Jackson himself. As you probably remember from previous episodes, Van Buren's coalition was made up of Northerners and Southerners who rallied behind Jacksonian populism. But the coalition was tenuous, and Van Buren knew it. 
As a northerner, he had to keep Southern politicians happy if he was going to win the presidency. One thing that would make them very happy, besides annexing Texas, would be putting an end to the discussion of slavery in Congress for good. This is really a loyalty oath. You have to prove to us how far you're willing to go to support slaveholders in the United States. If you're willing to gag your own constituents, prevent them from speaking about an issue we deem sensitive, then we're going to be your friends forever. If not, we're going to have to seriously reconsider the coalition. And that's why Van Buren is doing everything he can to stifle anti-slavery petitioners, because this is all about the coalition he has set up. Vice President Van Buren, eyeing the presidency for himself, had plenty of allies in the lower chamber, including Henry Lawrence Pinckney of South Carolina, who shared a paternalistic view of slavery. He saw it as benign, as benevolent, as hard as it can be for us to imagine, as good for enslaved people as well as for white masters. Slavery produces wealth. It also allows enslaved people to gain the Christian gospel and all these other things that seem absolutely vile to us. Pinckney set up a committee at the start of 1836 to figure out what to do with the thousands of anti-slavery petitions flooding Congress. Hardliners wanted to dismiss the petitions outright. John Quincy wanted free reign to read them. When Pinckney's committee finished its work in May, he offered a series of resolutions. But it was the final one that hit the House floor like a lit stick of dynamite. Pinckney proposed that all petitions or other correspondence to the House about slavery should, quote, be laid upon the table and that no further action would ever shall be had thereon. He's basically saying, we're not just going to ignore all these anti-slavery petitions in Congress. We're going to ban even mentioning them. They don't exist. A wave of anger washed over John Quincy as he sat at his desk. He jumped to his feet and said, and again, I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of, silence petitions! Have you not read the First Amendment? Every American citizen has the right to, quote, petition the government for a redress of grievances. Adams demanded the motion be withdrawn. Pinckney and his allies refused. Adams turned, appealed to House Speaker James K. Polk. He too refused. Adams shot back. I am aware that there is a slaveholder in the chair. The House devolved into chaos. Southern congressmen shouted at Adams, accusing him of violating parliamentary order. Still, Adams persisted, exasperated and angry. I imagine him pointing at the great seal of the United States, yelling quotes from the Constitution as others shouted at him, pacing, demanding to be heard. Polk refused to let Adams speak. Adams froze, turned to the speaker and asked, Am I gagged or not? You know, and the answer was he was. Adams was in shock as the vote to silence petitions proceeded. His voice, now also silenced. When his name was called, he got in one last jab. Voting nay, he added, I hold the resolution to be a direct violation of the Constitution of the United States. His objections fell on deaf ears. The resolution to ignore anti-slavery petitions on the House floor passed. 
it would become known as the gag rule. The gag rule was an anti-John Quincy Adams rule. The discussion, even mention of slavery, was now banned in the House of Representatives. Here's the thing I love about John Quincy Adams, though. He was an indomitable force, and nobody could shut him up when he had something to say. Still ahead, Adams pulls his trademark political jujitsu on the House floor and single-handedly turns the tide on the debate over Texas. That's coming up after a break. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. John Quincy Adams was gagged in the house, but not in the press. His spirited stands against the expansion of slavery made national headlines. They also caught the attention of someone who wanted to help. 
Benjamin Lundy presents himself to John Quincy Adams as this very sympathetic religious moralist, someone who listens, someone who will take very strong stands against slavery, but he's willing to listen to other sides. He'll try to push and nudge people rather than yell and scream. Richard Newman again. What is important about this moment for Benjamin Lundy is never has a former president, never has a gifted statesman of the stature of John Quincy Adams been at the center of the abolitionist movement in Congress. And that's why he's going the extra mile to nudge Adams into the anti-slavery cause. And it's, you know, doubly important to note that by temperament and by politics, Adams doesn't want to be in that position. Lundy begins writing to Adams in awe of his outspoken stand against slavery. Adams responds, saying he's not an abolitionist. Lundy agrees. You're not an abolitionist. You are a prophet. The eyes of millions, my dear and honored friend, are now turned to thee. No mortal ever held a part of greater usefulness, more enviable distinction, or higher moral responsibility than is thine at the present moment. Adams couldn't help but be flattered. A friendship begins. They write regularly. Lundy was a Quaker, and so Lundy spoke, you know, thou and put EST at the end of all of his words and so forth. He was a very pure person, and he and Adams had lengthy correspondences back and forth. And I point out that Adams so got into Lundy's own idiom that Adams began writing like a Quaker. He used the same kind of uh, old-fashioned diction when addressing Lundy. Lundy had traveled all over Texas. Now he was Adams' man on the inside. He went to Texas uh, at the time that Texas was uh, rebelling against Mexico and becoming a republic. And Lundy feared that Texas would be annexed by the United States and it was so big, it would be turned into some huge numbers of states, perhaps as many as 15, and they would all be pro-slavery and they'd vote for slavery. Adams was warming to the abolitionist ideology, but his wife... Louisa was torn. Part of that was because part of her identity was being a a Southerner, being a Marylander. She was a citizen in Maryland before she was a citizen in the U.S. And her sisters, who were best friends, were slaveholders. Louisa Thomas is a writer at The New Yorker and author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. She says Louisa and John Quincy were losing friends over his stance against slavery. Their social ties were fraying. Louisa was used to the name-calling and sideways glances, but things kept getting uglier. She's scared because he's getting death threats, and she saw and knew of the death threats. She was afraid of the violence against him, and, you know, not unwisely. And she wasn't ready to sacrifice him in the fight against slavery. She wrote in her diary that supporting her husband meant losing the love, the friendship, and the society of my own nearest and dearest connections. Attacks against prominent abolitionist leaders like Theodore Weld were on the rise. People regularly threw eggs and rocks at him during his speeches. And things got really ugly when an angry mob murdered an abolitionist publisher in the fall of 1837. But then, a bright spot appeared. In the spring of 1838, construction finished on the crown jewel of the movement, a grand venue in Center City, Philadelphia, christened Pennsylvania Hall. 
It was like the Capitol building for the abolitionist movement. It's a safe space for abolitionists. They've spent a lot of time and money trying to build it. And when it's dedicated in May of 1838, people feel like it's going to be this great symbol of freedom in the United States. But the hope didn't last long. After three days, it was burned to the ground by angry Philadelphians. But it's not just that the hall is burned down after three days. It's that people in Philadelphia blame abolitionists for bringing on the burning down of Pennsylvania Hall. They said, you caused this because you were radicals. You spoke against slavery. You didn't listen to all the people who told you to keep quiet and not say anything. The pressure was mounting from all sides to silence the growing abolitionist movement. Violence in the streets a gag order in the U.S. Capitol. But this is why John Quincy Adams was such an ally for the movement and a lethal politician. He knew all the rules. Possibly more important, he knew how to use the rules against his enemies. Shortly after the burning of Penn Hall, Congress took up debate over the annexation of Texas. Resolutions poured into the Capitol arguing both for and against annexation. The Foreign Affairs Committee, dominated by slaveholders, refused to even read the resolutions. This gave Adams an opening. I'm going to paraphrase again, but this is essentially how it all went down. Adams asked, have these petitions received even five minutes of consideration? Peeved, the chair of the committee addresses him. How dare any member catechize the committee of its actions? Essentially saying, how dare you question our intentions? Another member blurts out, no, we haven't read the resolutions, big deal. Adams, knowing the rules, pounced. He knew the committee was required to read the petitions even if they don't address them. And he knew they hadn't read them. So the committee goes, all right, whatever. Let's propose a resolution to take no action on these petitions. Then, out of nowhere, Adams' favorite Southern foil, Waddy Thompson of, you guessed it, South Carolina, doubles down. He says, you know what? I'd like to propose an amendment to that resolution. My amendment calls on the president to immediately annex Texas. Waddy shoots a grin over at Adams, thinking he has the upper hand but he'd actually walked right into John Quincy's trap. Adams knew Thompson would add some asinine amendment, and he knew that you can amend an amendment. So Adams makes an amendment. He says, okay, neither the president or Congress has the power to annex Texas. This amendment gave Adams complete access to the House floor to talk endlessly. Waddy unwittingly, had ripped the gag off Adams. Adams was unleashed. He argued for women's suffrage and equal rights. He spoke against the annexation of Texas. He quoted the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. He essentially filibustered for three weeks. Eventually, a committee member asks Adams if he's ever going to shut up. Adams says that if the gentleman wished, he would... Enter into a full and strict scrutiny of slavery. And so long as God shall give me life and breath and the faculty of speech, he shall have it to his heart's content. Adams basically says, 
I can do this all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Adams jammed up the House debate. Over the course of the weeks he had held the floor, newspapers printed his various rants. Instead of silencing him, his opponents had essentially given him a bullhorn. And with this bullhorn, Adams turned up the political pressure on the new president, Martin Van Buren, making it nearly impossible to annex Texas. Eventually, Van Buren relented. If John Quincy Adams doesn't do his multi-week filibuster in June and July of 1838, these famous morning hour speeches, it's pretty clear that the slave power might well have succeeded in getting a vote on Texas annexation earlier and maybe successfully. But John Quincy Adams really turns the entire North against this. Adams for the win. The annexation of Texas had stalled, but the fight over slavery was more heated than ever. Within a year, it would boil over when a group of enslaved Africans revolted and took over a ship destined for the Caribbean. When the Africans were captured off the coast of the United States, a question spread across the nation. What should happen to them? Like always, John Quincy Adams found himself at the center of it all. On the next episode of Founding Son, when a son says, you know, this could undermine everything you're working for, but John Quincy Adams thinks the opposite, but he's not willing to get involved until Lewis Tappan shows up in his doorstep. They urged me so much and represented the case of those unfortunate men as so critical, it being a case of life and death, that I yielded and told them that if by the blessing of God my health and strength should permit, I would argue the case before the Supreme Court. Founding Son is a curiosity podcast brought to you by iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. For help with this episode, we want to thank James Traub, author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit, Richard Newman, professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology, and Louisa Thomas, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Our lead producer, story editor, and sound designer is James Morrison. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Fact-checking by Adam Bisno. This episode was mixed and mastered by George Hicks. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Original music by me, Bob Crawford. Additional scoring is by Blue Dot Sessions. John Quincy Adams is voiced by Patrick Warburton. Andrew Jackson is voiced by Nick Offerman. Louisa Adams is voiced by Gray Delisle. Additional voices in this episode provided by Ben Sawyer and Michael Smirkanish. Show art designed by Darren Schock. Special thanks to John Higgins from Curiosity Stream, Julia Criscow, the Massachusetts Historical Society, and the National Park Service. We couldn't do this podcast without them. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give it a five-star rating in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity Podcasts, 
to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. This podcast was recorded under a SAG after collective bargaining agreement. I'm your host, Bob Crawford. Thanks for listening. School of Humans. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.